I knew the woods of my small, southern rural town like the back of my hand. I cleared dozens of trails to ride my bike, built forts with my friends, and enjoyed the best and worst of what nature has to offer. Being outdoorsy, hiking the Appalachian Trail was always a primary goal. Growing into my mid-teens, I moved from a small town to a slightly bigger city in western North Carolina, where I could finally see the mighty Appalachian Trail for myself. This trail and the surrounding areas created pivotal memories that forever changed who I am as a person. My respect and undying passion for the forest were forever solidified with my time spent in those woods. Welcome back to the swamp, my friends, and a very special welcome if you're new. We're glad to have you. Today, we're taking a microscope to one of North America's, well, really the world's most infamous hiking trail. So grab your snacks, elbow that like button, and get comfy, because this is gonna be a long one. These are the many dark secrets of the Appalachian Trail. The Appalachian Trail stretches 2,200 miles from Springer Mountain, Georgia, to Katahdin, Maine. That's right, and it extends through 14 states and according to the Appalachian Trail Conservancy, it is said to be the longest hiking only trail in the world. Upwards of 3 million visitors have walked these trails every single year since it opened in 1937. Lifelong forester Benton McKay initially proposed it in 1921. After a decade of backbreaking work, it was finally opened for the public to enjoy, and the Conservancy has never stopped improving and updating the ever-expansive trails ever since. The Appalachian Trail is one of the three that make up the illustrious Triple Crown of Hiking, which I personally hope to complete sometime. The others are the Pacific Crest Trail and the Continental Divide Trail. Each year, over 3,000 people attempt to hike the trail and barely 25% finish the daunting task. Generally speaking, the Appalachian Trail is a relatively safe hike at least, the injury and death statistics align with most others around the country. Many of these incidents are from wildlife, weather, human error, and sickness. But unfortunately, the number of hostile human encounters is on the rise. Over the years, off-trail communities have been a growing problem. These communities typically consist of hikers, campers, transients, and others that tend to live on society's outskirts. It's not my goal to paint these people as any less than they are but it is relevant to be aware of these types that we're referring to. Many have said these communities resemble homeless encampments. In contrast, the Conservancy has roughly 40 sponsored communities, which are simple gatherings of hikers passing through specific trail sections. They usually consist of visitor centers and other facilities. Upon completing the Appalachian Trail, you are awarded the title of thru-hiker, which only 1,186 people have ever done. If you complete a local section on the trail, then you are commonly known as a section hiker. And if you are northbound, you might say Nobo or Sobo for southbound. Rugged terrain, unpredictable weather, and crazed people truly make this an epic feat. Of course, if you believe the legends, there just might be more than a few other things to fear out there in the woods. Let's talk about the area's folklore while we're at it. Now, of course, we can't in good conscience start this section without jumping right into the Bell Witch story. It's quite possibly the best example of Appalachian folklore, and it all begins with a small community in Robertson County, Tennessee. The Bell family patriarch, 
John Bell allegedly cheated Kate Bates in a land purchasing deal. As a result, Kate, aka the Bell Witch, cursed the land. Suddenly, tormented by hauntings, from 1817 to 1821, the Bell Witch would randomly appear disguised as a shadowy animal, typically a dog or a bird of some kind. The witch would put the brunt of her focus on the Bell's daughter, Betsy, tormenting her through the night. She ripped off her bedsheets and even physically was assaulted, with punches, scratches, and even soccer kicks. These violent attacks worried the family so much that they began sharing their stories with others in hopes of finding help. Eventually, a family friend, James Johnston, experienced the haunting firsthand and the case grew so famous that it ultimately reached General Andrew Jackson. Jackson is a colorful character in his own right, but that's a video for another day. According to legend, he and his soldiers set up tents outside the Bell home. One of the men claimed to know how to handle witches and confidently speculated silver bullets would end her terror. Apparently, the Bell Witch made an example out of this man and severely beat him. After this incident, Jackson and his team reportedly fled from the area. As for John Bell, he mysteriously passed away in 1820, but the hauntings continued plaguing his family. Betsy was forced to end her engagement with Joshua Gardner, who was said to have personally witnessed several incidents. It was only after this final blow that the Bell Witch finally disappeared. Legend says she promised a return to curse the Bell's descendants in 1935, but I couldn't find any mention of this coming to pass. However, you can still visit the Bell Witch Cave, where many visitors still claim to experience paranormal happenings. Let us know if you've ever been there or live near this area. We'd love to hear more. The Brown Mountain Lights are a staple in the Appalachian Mountain. I experienced this phenomenon while hiking with my good friends on the Blue Ridge Parkway in the early 2010. It was getting dark when my friend noticed a strange set of lights above us, higher up the mountain. After looking up, we stared at these peculiar, strobing lights before they faded out of sight, never moving a foot. Strange things happen on our planet, things our minds simply cannot rationalize. At least, not yet. The Blue Ridge Mountains in North Carolina hold one peculiar mystery, and it all surrounds a strange set of lights that seemingly appear out of thin air. It's hard to say when these ghostly sightings truly began, but historically I have seen accounts dating as far back as the 1890s, while the earliest documentation is dated 1910. Either way, the lights truly gained their notoriety in the 1920s. It's also essential to know that this is around the same time electricity was becoming widespread in the area. One of the earliest accounts appeared in the Charlotte Daily Observer on September 24, 1913. The report was attributed to Anderson Lovin and depicted mysterious lights seen just above the horizon every night. They were red and materialized punctually, once at 7.30 p.m. and again at 10 p.m. In that same year, a United States Geological Survey employee, D.B. Sturette, investigated the claims. He discovered the headlights of westbound Southern Railway's locomotives could be seen from Lovin's Hotel, and the train schedules, according to the local train station, left him no suspicion that this was the cause behind the lights. Then, in 1922, a USGS scientist, George R. Mansfield, attempted to debunk these claims once again, arguing things like trains, car headlights, and brush fires to be the cause. 
Mansfield set up an Allidade telescope near Lovins Hotel and he recorded several nighttime lights, one of which appeared to move erratically in flare and brightness, making Joseph Lovin call it a true brown mountain light. Another series of lights were witnessed on a mountain curve in a southern railways track and its appearance coincided precisely with that of a scheduled train. For the time being, these claims eased the public tension and concern. However, over the years, locals have begun speculating these 20th century occurrences and wonder what they could have been. Many other famous sightings were revealed over the years and the Brown Mountain Lights even had their own X-Files segment from a 1999 episode titled Field Trip. The lights have inspired many movies such as the 2014 film Alien Abduction and other shows like Ancient Aliens, Mystery Hunters, and Weird or What. Of course, much like the rest of the world, the Appalachian wilderness has many stories of monsters lurking in the forest shadows. Of course, there is no better place to start than the legend of the wild men in the wood. These wild men have been sighted since the early 1800s and thousands of accounts have flooded the internet. In the early 20th century, a logging employee discovered a set of massive footprints in the North Georgia mountains. This is what genuinely sparked the East Coast Bigfoot boom. With that said, the Flatwoods Monster is one of the most infamous Appalachian folklore monsters ever. It originated in a rural town in Braxton County, West Virginia, on the evening of September 12, 1952. Four kids, Edward May, Freddie May, Neil Nunley, and Tommy Heyer, all claimed to see a light shooting across the sky. The group decided to follow it and came upon what appeared to be a crash site. They noticed red glowing lights materializing from behind the wreckage, which they described as a 10-foot-tall levitating creature that had a radiant green face and allegedly made hissing sound. This event would make the local news and eventually national news. The U.S. Air Force even inquired about the incident, but nothing was ever confirmed. No one came forward with the body of the creature. There are no images other than fan art, and this alleged monster was never seen again at least not by any trustworthy sources, that is. Now, that's not to say the Flatwoods monster didn't crash land in Braxton County, but we may never know what really happened that evening. Today, tourists from all over the country visit these infamous areas to catch a glimpse of Sasquatch or gander a peek at the Brown Mountain Lights. Of course, we could cover many other stories like the Moon-Eyed People, Mothman, and the Wampus Cat, but I have videos dedicated to these topics, and most people already know a lot about them. For today, we'll just leave you a few links in the description, and those interested can check out those full stories on my channel. Now I want to move on to the real meat and potatoes. The Appalachian Trail, though a very serene, can be a very dangerous place. There are endless cold cases centered around missing people, murders, and everything in between. One case that sticks out to me is the 1990 double murder of Jeff Hood and Molly LaRue. Jeff was shot, and Molly was stabbed to death. It shares a few commonalities with the 2019 murder of Ronald Sanchez Jr. and an unidentified female companion who was hospitalized after being attacked, but these are only a few quick examples. We're about to cover nine cases where men proved that they could be every bit as unpredictable as Mother Nature itself, or maybe a few of these belonged in the folklore section. I guess you'll have to be the judge. 
The earliest ones happened in the 1970s, while the most recent ones were actually only a few years ago. So, let's dive right into this. Joel Polson, 26 years old, was the first recorded murder on the Appalachian Trail, according to a Strange Outdoors article. Joel met Margaret Harrett, 17 years old, in March of 1974 when she began waitressing in Five Points, Georgia. Joel spoke non-stop of his plan to hike the Appalachian Trail, and he was determined for Margaret to join him. At first, she laughed it off, but when Joel kept returning, she eventually agreed. A decision I'm sure she regretted for the rest of her days. Having rather strict parents, Margaret said she was one of the 15 college students that Joel would lead on the hike. She introduced him to her parents in mid-April, and on May 9th, their journey began at the Southern Terminus at Springer Mountain, Georgia. This part of the trail is particularly steep, and the rookie hikers were heavily overloaded in supplies. Within the first mile, Margaret developed a blister on her heel, and the couple broke for lunch. They had only gone six miles when they came across the Low Gap shelter and decided to stay the night. The shelter was already occupied by a man who introduced himself as Ralph. The stranger seemed like he hadn't showered in quite some time, while his lack of gear and sparse belongings, which were just a blanket, a leather jacket, and a canvas rucksack, made him seem more like a drifter than a hiker. The couple spoke with Ralph for a few moments before washing up in the stream, where Joel expressed his lack of trust in their new roommate. Upon their return, the couple cooked and offered to share their food with Ralph, but he declined their generosity. Instead, he searched for firewood, something he would do twice more as the night wore on. Joel and Margaret only grew more nervous the later it got. Eventually, they decided it would be best to leave at dawn and to have their breakfast a few miles away. When morning came, Joel woke Margaret before going to the stream to freshen up, and as he doubled back the fire ring, Ralph left the shelter. Margaret was lacing her boots and she heard a loud blast and looked back to see Joel lying on the ground. Ralph then tied Margaret's hands behind her back before guiding her up a narrow path and into the woods. There, she was forced to sit in front of a tree while Ralph tied her legs around it, blindfolded her, and walked away. Margaret stayed for about 10 to 15 minutes until Ralph returned to untie her. When he took her back to the shelter, the corpse was gone and Ralph searched through Joel's belongings finding only traveler's checks. He escorted Margaret back into the woods roughly 200 yards away, where he again tied her to a tree. This time, he promised to leave a note in the shelter saying where she was. He also left her water and a granola bar for the wait. I have no idea how she was supposed to utilize them with her hands tied behind her back, but I guess it's the thought that counts, maybe? It didn't matter because 15 minutes later, he returned yet again, worried she wouldn't be found, he gave her a choice between staying there or hiking to the highway together, and Margaret chose the second option. With her hands untied, she led the way while Ralph followed behind with a gun and a promise to kill anyone she might try to signal for help. A short way into the hike, the unlikely pair stopped for a rest when two men carrying chainsaws suddenly appeared. Fortunately, they could continue along a ridge over the Chattahoochee River without further violence. During their walk, Ralph explained how he escaped from jail and wanted to head west, which was why he stole Joel's gear. The two rested at Rocky Knob Shelter before descending a steep 150-yard side trail. After looking at Joel's map, Ralph realized the road next to the crossing was less than three miles away. That's when he announced he wouldn't let Margaret go after all. 
Instead, they would get a motel room and he would free her in the morning. In a stroke of good luck, they were only on the road for just a few minutes when a young woman stopped to offer them a ride. Once in her car, Ralph explained they had lost their IDs but only had traveler's checks. They wondered if she knew of a place where they would overlook such a detail. With the gun still in Ralph's hand, Margaret also asked for a motel recommendation, to which they were told the Chattahoochee Motel. There, Joel signed Mr. and Mrs. Joel Polson to the registry, and the pair purchased food and beer from next door before settling into their room. They watched an Elvis Presley movie while Ralph practiced Joel's signature, and he offered to let Margaret take the memento from Joel's pack, but she declined this. It was a weird... It was a weird gesture, but a kind invitation, I guess? I don't know what to call it, but that's probably... Not really a kind thing at all, huh? Margaret asked to shower, but Ralph followed her to the bathroom, worried she would climb through the window. Out of options, she went to bed, surprisingly able to sleep the night through, while Ralph remained on watch with the gun. The following day, they were able to cash out another $20 check at a gas station, and this would be where Margaret was set free, but you won't be surprised to hear there was another change in plan. Over coffee, Ralph explained it would be best to find a bus station in Cleveland and from there, they could go their separate ways. They did successfully hitchhike to a station, but once there, the man selling tickets explained it would be cheaper to take a Greyhound directly east. The pair hitched yet another ride, cashed a few more checks, and had a lunch while waiting for the bus station to open. By then, Margaret had bought a $10 ticket to Columbia, and Ralph had purchased a $3 ticket to Atlanta. Ralph's bus was late, but still the first to arrive, and Margaret patiently waited through this tense departure until her bus arrived a short time later. It was dark when she finally made it to Columbia. She had an older brother living nearby, but she could not reach out to him or her parents. She only called the Columbia Police Department. Her call was relayed from South Carolina to Georgia. Sheriff Frank Baker called in backup from the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. On Saturday, May 11th, Special Agent Stanley Thompson accompanied the sheriff to Low Gap Shelter. There, they discovered Joel's remains concealed beneath forest debris across the stream from the shelter. A plastic bag was tied around the victim's head, and his autopsy revealed a 38 caliber bullet had pierced his skull just behind his left ear. On May 16th, the Atlanta PD received a phone tip from a woman claiming to have met a man matching Ralph's description, and she knew his address. Agent Thompson and Sheriff Baker then drove to Atlanta where they obtained a search warrant. Their suspect wasn't home when they arrived, but inside the apartment they found Joel's backpack, clothes, camping gear, and the murder weapon. All they had to do was wait, and the moment Ralph returned, he was promptly arrested. Ralph Howard Fox, 31 years old, had quite the criminal record from his youth. Once, while his parents were away, he kidnapped a girl from his party. At 17, he was arrested for stealing a car, and the following year he was arrested again for breaking and entering. In 1963, he took a 15-year-old to New Mexico where he was arrested for statutory rape and contributing to the delinquency of a minor, but that didn't stop him from marrying the girl just a few months later. In 1964, his young wife was pregnant and Ralph handled the stress by forcing a high school student into his car at gunpoint. He then drove the poor girl 13 miles to a secluded area known as Lover's Lane in Troy, Michigan. Thankfully, a police officer happened on the scene as Ralph tied the child's hands behind her back. 
This incident earned him a 15-year sentence, but he only served a short portion before escaping Michigan State Prison. His wife divorced him, and in October 1969, he was captured in Miami and extradited back to Michigan. Years later, when he was released on parole, he broke into his ex-wife's home and waited for her with a rifle. Fortunately, he missed when she arrived, and from there, he fled to New Orleans and Fort Lauderdale before ending up in Atlanta. He was only on the Appalachian Trail for five days before killing Joel. Margaret was able to pick Ralph out of a lineup, and he confessed to owning the murder weapon, but maintained he never intended to harm Margaret. In October 1975, he was indicted for murder and pleaded guilty to his charges. However, he was sentenced to life in Georgia State Prison. In 1991, he was given a one-month reprieve to attend his brother's funeral in Michigan, and he was eventually paroled. Once released, he moved to Lapeer County, roughly 50 miles north of Detroit. But his freedom was short-lived. After seven months, he failed to meet with his parole officer and couldn't be found at his home or work. A week later, on March 5, 1992, police discovered the body of 29-year-old Diane Good. Thanks to towing records, they placed Ralph at the scene and a nationwide alert was issued. Two days later, he was arrested in Skagit County, Washington, while attempting to break into a parked car. The trial for Diane's murder was held that November. Ralph maintained a plea of innocence, but the jury had no trouble declaring him guilty. In June 2003, he was transferred to the state prison hospital where he died from lung cancer the following month. On April 20th, 1975, Janice Balza was 22 years old and was sitting at a campfire near the Van Deventer shelter when 51-year-old former mental patient Paul Bigley attacked her. He murdered her with a hatchet. Some accounts say it was because he admired her backpack. According to a news clipping, Bigley later walked off the Appalachian Trail, knocked on the door of a nearby house. There, he asked the homeowner to call the sheriff's department and confessed to murdering Balza. When officers arrived, he claimed to have been in the shelter first and murdered Balza as she sat at the fire. Three deputies were dispatched and the young girl's remains were soon located. Bigley was charged with first-degree murder and spent the rest of his life in prison. Fun fact, some actually believe Janice's ghost haunts Van Deventer shelter, but I can't really find any solid evidence saying that this is true, but it is an interesting story to note. A grunge article tells of a gruesome double murder from May 19, 1981. Robert Mountford Jr. and Laura Susan Ramsey, both 27-year-old social workers, traveled from their main hometown to Virginia to hike a portion of the Appalachian Trail. It was meant to serve as a fundraiser for a school run by Mountford's mother. The school specifically served children with developmental challenges. On the night of their murder, the young couple shared a meal with another hiker, Randall Lee Smith, at the Wapiti Shelter in Giles, Virginia. After their dinner, Smith shot Mountford with a 22 caliber pistol and Ramsey was hit with a piece of iron before being stabbed multiple times, not with just a knife, but a weapon described as a long nail. Smith then dragged the bodies back to their sleeping bags and buried them in shallow graves. It was less than two weeks after they were reported as missing that the authorities discovered the crime scene at the Wapiti shelter. Not only was blood left between the floorboards, but there was also a camera without film and a book belonging to Ramsey. 
Believe it or not, this book would be the most crucial evidence on it was a bloody fingerprint by Randall Lee Smith himself. A search of Smith's home revealed a pair of bloody jeans belonging to the deceased couple and other vital evidence. Police eventually arrested Smith in Myrtle Beach where he claimed to have amnesia, pretending he didn't know his name or why he was in South Carolina. Though once extradited to Virginia, he merely said he didn't want to discuss the murders. While there was substantial evidence against Smith, prosecutors feared a lack of motive would hurt their chances for conviction. Ultimately, the victim's family agreed to a plea agreement and Smith pled guilty to two counts of second-degree murder. This earned him a 30-year sentence and he was released in 1996 after serving only 15 years. By all accounts, Smith was well-behaved both during his sentence and after. Then, in early 2008, his neighbor called for a welfare check after realizing they hadn't seen Randall for several days. Mark Skidmore, an evidence technician with Giles County Sheriff's Department, was present during the search of Smith's house. And though nothing was out of place, the utilities had been disconnected for non-payment. Knowing Smith enjoyed the solitude, friends assumed he made his way onto the Appalachian Trail. However, when he still failed to return home, missing posters were hung, and a search party was assembled. This brought us to May 8th when best friends Sean Farmer and Scott Johnston were camping at Walnut Flats in Dismal Creek, Virginia. While Johnston was fishing alone, he was approached by a man who called himself Ricky Williams. During an interview in the Fordham Ram, the pair noted that they assumed the man was lying. They described Smith as a scraggly and gaunt man, appearing as if he had been living in the woods for quite some time, yet he was wearing an expensive camouflage coat and new hiking boots. Unfortunately, they only thought of him as a harmless alcoholic. Smith and Johnston reportedly caught several trout together, so Johnston invited his new acquaintance and his dog back to the camp for dinner. After their meal, they listened to music and seemed to be having a good time. As it was growing dark, Smith positioned himself between the two friends, called for his dog, and began walking away from the campsite. That's when Smith pulled out his 22 caliber revolver and shot both men. Farmer was shot in the left side of his face without warning. The 6'4 and 325 pound man staggered, but he didn't fall. Instead, he turned to see his new companion shoot towards Johnston, who fled into a cluster of trees behind the tent. Later, Johnston stated he began running the moment he heard the first shot, but he never actually saw the weapon. He didn't even realize he'd been shot until he stopped to catch his breath. Out of pure instinct, Johnston found the hole in his neck and plugged it with his index finger. He then turned his attention back to the campsite where he witnessed Smith shoot Farmer in the chest from roughly 10 feet away, and still, Farmer did not collapse. He turned and fled for his car while Smith followed silently behind. Thankfully, Farmer was able to start his Jeep and drive towards the main road. Johnston saw this and rushed through the underbrush to meet his friend. His neck wound was still plugged, but he had no idea he was also shot in the back. Farmer saw Johnston on the main road and stopped to let his friend in. The nearest home was five to six miles away, and the hospital was a good 40 miles away. They sped down a treacherous road with sharp turns, deadly drop-offs, and no guardrails at 45 miles per hour. And against all odds, it was going fairly well until Farmer began losing sight in his right eye. From there, Johnston took control of the wheel while instructing Farmer when to hit the gas or brake. Eventually, they reached the bottom of the mountain where they saw five houses. They parked in front of the first home's driveway and Johnston began banging on the front door, pleading for help. The homeowner, Melissa Miller, 
almost didn't answer for fear of a home invasion, but she eventually recognized Farmer as a friend's axe. She held towels to the men's wounds until police and helicopters arrived shortly after, and both men were airlifted to the hospital. Johnston was temporarily without a pulse during the flight, but both men miraculously survived their brutal attack. The bullet that struck Farmer's face became lodged in his sinus cavities, and the shot in his chest entered between two ribs, and a muscle mass in his chest pushed the bullet away from his heart. As for Smith, he fled the scene in Johnston's Ford Ranger pickup, but a Virginia State Trooper spotted him, and Smith crashed during the ensuing chase, overturning the truck. In the hospital, he was arrested and charged with two counts of attempted murder before being transferred to New River Regional Jail Medical Unit. He perished shortly after due to a suspected blood clot. He was 54 at the time of his death. In May 1988, Rebecca White, who was 29 years old, and Claudia Brenner parked at Dead Woman's Hollow in Pennsylvania for a day of hiking and camping on the Appalachian Trail. According to the Washington Post, the couple were resting near a stream when gunfire rang through the forest along with women's terrified screams. Stephen Roy Cars, a 21-year-old drifter, targeted the women with his bolt-action rifle. He fired eight shots, missing only once. Claudia was struck five times, in the arm, neck, and cheek, plus a scrape along the top of her head. Wright was only hit twice, but the shots that hit her proved fatal. Carr fled the scene, leaving both women for dead. At first, Claudia was unaware of her injuries, but she eventually wrapped a towel around her neck. She also attempted to coax White into joining her, searching for help, but her partner was too gravely wounded. After a four-mile hike, Claudia made it to the road and could flag down help. She wanted to return for White, but the young boys offering their assistance delivered her to a fire station instead. Considering her injuries, I'm sure this was the right choice. One of the more chilling aspects to this case is the fact that these women encountered Carr twice before the shooting, but neither interaction seemed suspicious. The first time, White met him at a trail shelter, and the second time occurred on the way to another campsite. Carr managed to evade law enforcement for a week after the shooting. He was already wanted in Florida for grand larceny, so he hid in a Mennonite community. If you're unfamiliar with that term, Mennonites don't read newspapers or watch TV meaning they had no clue Carr was a cold-blooded murderer. The family who took him in merely asked him to help on the farm and attend church. Carr obviously agreed to these terms, but as fate would have it, one community member was lax enough to read the newspaper one day and recognize the fugitive, and the authorities were alerted. At his trial, the judge disallowed any mention of the women's relationship, which forced the defendant to take a plea deal for life without parole as their entire case rested on cars flying into an uncomfortable rage at seeing the women together. Claudia published a book detailing her experience from this day, it's only one of the reasons she became amongst the most prominent activist against the anti-gay violence in the country. Now, let's get back to Jeff Hood, who is 26, from Signal Mountain, Tennessee, and Molly LaRue, 25, from Shakers Heights, Ohio. According to Penn Live, the young couple was through hiking the trail, adopting the trail names Clevis and Now Jean. On September 11th, 1990, the young couple spent a night at the Doyle Hotel in Duncannon. Upon their arrival, they unpacked, called their parents, ate, and retrieved their mail. 
The following day, they shared one last lunch with the family before returning to the trail, and that night, they slept at the Thelma Marks shelter atop Cove Mountain. Early in the morning of September 13th, a drifter by the name of Paul David Cruz, who is 38 years old from Loris, South Carolina, brutally murdered Jeff and Molly. Their bodies were discovered by two hikers later that same morning. Hood had been shot three times and LaRue was assaulted before being stabbed in the throat, neck, and back. The article distinguished the throat and neck. Is there a difference? I'm not entirely sure. This tragedy left the community shaken and caused many hikers to skip this section until Cruz was finally arrested on September 21st near Harper's Ferry when officers discovered he had items belonging to Jeff. He gave the name David Casey Horn and waived extradition from West Virginia to Pennsylvania on November 15th. The next day, he was placed in Perry County Prison without bail. Starting on May 9th, a jury consisted of five women and seven men was kept sequestered for the 11-day trial. Testimony came in on the 15th, and they started their deliberation on the 24th, but it only took 45 minutes to find Cruz guilty. It took less than two hours to agree on the death penalty the next day. Unfortunately, due to a costly appeals process, Paul's sentence was reduced to two life terms without the possibility of parole on December 21st, 2006. According to the Conway Daily Sun, Louise Chaput, a self-employed psychologist, was last seen on November 15, 2001, and her case remains unsolved. The 52-year-old drove from Quebec to Pinkham's Grant, where she acquired a lodge at the Appalachian Mountain Club Visitor Center. Though she planned to stay the weekend, she never checked into her accommodations. Around 3 p.m. that day, she asked a clerk to recommend a short hike, which led her to the Lost Pond Trail. The trailhead was just across the street, but she was never heard from again. On Monday, November 19th, friends and family quickly realized she had failed to return and filed a missing persons report with local police. Sadly, her remains were discovered 200 feet from the Glen Boulder Trail just three days later on Thanksgiving Day. Chaput's backpack, car keys, and sleeping bag were never recovered, but her car was parked in the Dyer Tasima Trailhead on autopsy. An autopsy revealed multiple stab wounds, but it was also clear that she put up a fight. Her case was ruled a homicide, and authorities theorized it would be a random killing, stating that Chaput's attacker was likely a stranger. Though this is now a cold case, the victim's daughter remains active in their search for justice. They've not only stayed in touch with the New Hampshire Cold Case Unit, they also remain active on social media in hopes of spreading further awareness about their mother's case. Meredith Emerson was a 24-year-old born in Charleston, South Carolina, and raised in Holly Springs, North Carolina. But she resided in Buford, Georgia at the time of her disappearance. On New Year's Day in 2008, she went hiking with her dog on Blood Mountain in northern Georgia, and it proved to be Meredith's last. According to her wiki page, she was last seen working with an elderly man on the Spur Trail, which connects the Appalachian Trail to the Byron Herbert Reese parking lot. This man would later be identified as Gary Michael Hilton, a 61-year-old serial killer who was unfortunately mistaken for a drifter. Interestingly enough, Wikipedia also refers to him as the National Forest Serial Killer. Honestly, we could do a whole video on just him. Let me know if you're interested in that. When Meredith failed to return home, her friends began a search, but sadly they found no trace of her. 
The first clues wouldn't arise until January 4th when her dog was found alive in Cumming, Georgia, roughly 60 miles away. Unfortunately, it was already too late for the pup's owner. This was also the day authorities received an anonymous tip from a witness at a Chevron station. He only said, The guy you're looking for is cleaning out his van. And the officers rushed to the scene. Thankfully, they arrived before Hilton was able to bleach the van's interior, and crime scene analysts were able to collect vital DNA evidence proving Emerson was indeed in the vehicle. After Hilton was charged with murder, the prosecution agreed to remove the possibility of death sentence if he led investigators to Emerson's body, which he eventually did. When asked for a motive, Hilton claimed Emerson gave him the wrong pin for her debit card, and she refused to give him the correct one. She was then held hostage for four days before he finally killed her. The autopsy would rule her cause of death as blunt force trauma to the head, but we can't take some modicum of comfort knowing her dog was released unharmed. Hilton claimed he couldn't bring himself to kill the dog, and as for Emerson, he merely said, It was hard, but you gotta remember, we had spent several good days together. This is a particularly heartless way to describe it, even for a possible sociopath. But it's nice that Hilton exposed himself as a true monster. Gary's trial seems to have happened in record time, as he pleaded guilty to Emerson's murder on January 30th and received life in prison without the possibility of parole. After his incarceration, Hilton was linked and charged with three additional murders, but many experts believe there are more that we simply don't know about. Among other indicators, it would be highly unlikely for a man of Hilton's age to begin his killing career so late in life. Regardless, that's a debate for another day. Today, our focus is on the Appalachian Trail and all the mysterious things that may or may not occur there. Scott Lilly was a 30-year-old Sobo hiker from South Bend, Indiana, who began his trek on June 15, 2011. Being a Civil War buff, he adopted the trail name Stonewall in honor of the Confederate commander Stonewall Jackson. Scott's intention was to hike from Maryland to Springer Mountain in Georgia, but he only made it as far as Nelson County, Virginia. He was last seen July 31st after climbing the Priest, a mountain over 4,000 feet tall. That night, he stayed at the Priest shelter along Old Hotel Trail, which loops around to rejoin the Appalachian Trail roughly two miles north. This trail is in the Mount Pleasant National Scenic Area, and it follows the Ap Trail through the Bald on Coal Mountain before descending to Cow Camp Gap. On Friday, August 12th, this camp is where a group of weekend hikers found Scott's body buried in a shallow grave near the shelter. His cause of death was determined to be asphyxiation, and it was estimated that he died roughly 12 days before being discovered. The case was ruled a homicide, and being on federal land, Special Agent Dave Duanis with the FBI led the investigation. His case remains unsolved to this day, and there is very little to go on. Though Scott's possessions were missing, authorities did not consider robbery a motive. According to People Magazine, Ronald Sanchez Jr., 43 years old, was stabbed by James L. Jordan, 32 years old, on May 10th, 2019. His trail name was Stronghold, and he was hiking in Virginia, hoping to benefit from the trail's therapeutic effects after multiple deployments to Iraq left him suffering from PTSD. Ronald was with three other hikers when James, trail named Sovereign, first approached the group in Smythe County. Witnesses described him as behaving disturbed and unstable, 
and the small party actually recognized Jordan from warnings on social media. Other hikers had written of their experiences with the strange man, saying he threatened them when passing through Tennessee. After this first initial encounter, the group continued along the trail, reaching Wythe County, where they then set up camp. There, reports state Jordan once again confronted the group, threatening to douse their tents in gasoline and burn them all. He then chased the two hikers with his knife before returning to the camp, where an argument ensued between Jordan, Sanchez, and an unidentified female hiker. During this heated debate, Sanchez was stabbed and fell to the ground. He was able to activate an emergency alert on his phone, but succumbed to his wounds shortly after. His companion fled, but she was unable to escape. Jordan stabbed her repeatedly until she fell to the ground, playing dead. Miraculously, she not only survived the gruesome attack, but she hiked six miles in order to call 911. Jordan was later arrested, and in April 2021, the defense and prosecution agreed the defendant would enter a plea of not guilty because of insanity, with a federal judge accepting. An evaluation found Jordan suffered from schizoaffective disorder and concluded he was unable to appreciate the wrongfulness of his acts. The defense lawyer also read the following statement. Mr. Jordan is deeply remorseful for the profound sorrow he has caused. He regrets that this lifelong battle with mental illness ultimately resulted in this trauma and loss for innocent hikers and their families. Mr. Jordan understands that continued treatment and medication will be required for the rest of his life. Most importantly, he would like the victims and the family of Mr. Sanchez to know he thinks about the damage he caused every day, and that he would like to do anything to change the past if he could. Jordan was later committed to a psychiatric institution and will not be released until a court finds by clear and convincing evidence that his release would not create a substantial risk of injury to anyone else. Well guys, that does it for the Appalachian Trail. What did you think? Could any of the unsolved cases be related to any of the legends? Do you think more of them are connected than we realize? Could Janice Bowser's ghost really haunt the Van Deventer shelter? There's so many questions that still need answers. Who knows, maybe we'll have a part two one day. Until then, thanks for hanging out and don't forget to slap that like button dirty and to praise Shrek for his magnanimous guidance to the swamp on this beautiful day. You all get one wish, don't waste it. Peace out, see you in the comments, and I'll be back soon with another creepy episode.